everybody. Welcome to the 74th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my other co-host and best friend. I said it backwards, but we're going to roll with it. You're my co-host and best friend, as well as my okay. best friend and co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, I was talking to Wesley yesterday, or it was it two days ago. I was talking to Wesley recently, and okay. we he asked me, like, well, how are you going to teach your son things, or like why do you want to do things in life? And it's just like, well, everybody knows the secret to life is just like exercise, eat well, and surround yourself with good people. So why is it so easy to know what the good thing is and so hard to do the actual good thing? Uh, well. Like, like we all, like, like, it's just like, why is it? It's a really deep question. I know. It's just like you, everybody knows, like, and if you remove yourself from the equation, you're just like, oh, objectively, like, yeah, if you just remove yourself, like person X should do this. And it's like, well, okay, well, why don't you do that? Well, it's like, well, I, I just, I, I don't want to, you know? <laughs> um, I would say that, like, it's easy to say you should exercise and you should eat well, but like. And you surround yourself with good people. All those things are like, yeah, you should do those things. But like, it's not really that simple. Like, what does exercise mean? Like, is that like doing how, how much, how much exercise should you do? Should you spend your whole life exercising? Probably not. So you have to figure out what, how much you should be exercising, what exercises you should be doing. And it adds like an extra level of complexity to it. And then it's also like, on top of like uncertainty about what you should be doing, because like, like I, I've been running in the mornings for a while now, for a couple months, but like, how, how much running should I be doing? I, I don't know. Should I be running every day? Should I take days off? Yeah, the calories. You should be burning more calories in a day than you're taking in. Uh, there's nothing that tells me how many how many calories I should be doing or burning or how many calories I'm taking. Well, that's in. part of good. Unless I start tracking should, that, but that exactly, wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's that part wasn't of one of the three things you listed. You yeah, said eat well. You didn't yeah. say track my that's diet very well. carefully. You got to eat well by tracking your calories so, to make sure you're getting the right nutrients. How like otherwise you so, don't know if you're eating well. So I think I think this is a little bit deep for an, an intro, but I think like it's not as simple as those three things at all. I think it is because. I think I thought well, that's just the secret of life and I figured it out and I'm very smart. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm happy for you, buddy. Just like I figured I'm out. I figured it all out. Lexi is the best deck in class constructed and I'm not playing Lexi in Dallas this weekend. That was the whole point of this segue. <laughs> I see. I see. As <laughs> I know something's objectively the best, not doing it. I'm playing Lexi. I know. You're also exercising, eating well, and surrounding yourself with good people. You're checking all four of the boxes, and I'm on maybe like one and a half, maybe. I think I eat okay, <laughs> and I surround myself with good people. I don't play Lexi, and I'm not currently okay. exercising. Unless you count running around with Austin on the playground want, exercising. You want to run with me in the morning? I don't. I don't I'll want come, to make time. I'll come over to your house. We can go. We can go run to the run to the park near you. It's cold now. It's yeah, fall. That's why you gotta you gotta wear warm clothes. I know. I get to wear my long sleeve shirty dues now. I got, I got Ooh. little like running gloves now. They have like they have like the 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 things on the fingers so that I can use my phone with my gloves on. Wow, it's sick. The future is now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. So you're playing Lexi in Dallas. I I am, yeah. Okay. Are you worried about Azalea now, now that Azalea beat up all the Lexis? Honestly, I I'm just gonna go have a good time. I'm gonna play some flesh and blood. I'll probably lose some games. Well <laughs> I don't know what I'll lose to. I'm sure I'll lose to something. Um I wasn't gonna go to Dallas until Brody was like, "Hey, you can stay here at my house." And I'm like, "Okay, well, that's enough to get me to go. We're gonna play some board games. It'll be great, and we're gonna do some drafting, uh, some bright lights draft, which is hard to do online now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well. much much easier to do in person. And I, I think, I think I'm testing less for this tournament. I, I guess I've been saying that a lot that I've been testing less for yeah, every every tournament for, for the past like two years you're like i haven't tested that much uh but i'm just gonna no, play this. no i tested a lot for world last year okay i think i, <laughs> I think i did that's way too long ago okay. but ever since world but, i guess you haven't tested that hard yeah i think you're the world champion you're on top that's... who cares you keep winning anyways <laughs> no it's Honestly, like, well, I, I have still been doing well since I've been testing less. Not, I, I would say this year has not been as good as last year, but I think even if I was testing like 24 7, it'd be ridiculous to expect the same results they got last year. They were. <laughs> Is this year worse than very, last year? Very, very good. Yeah. Did you make top? No, you didn't make last top eight. Year, yeah, last year you made top eight of the Pro Tour. You didn't make top eight of a Pro Tour this year. No. I've, I've never top eight a pro tour. That's right. That's the one thing you've never done. You still haven't pro- top eight of the pro tour. Yeah. I was like, I, I have not. They only like, give me one chance this year. Yeah. It's looking like there's going to be multiple chances next year. If uh, I'm reading between the lines correctly on some tweets. I, I hope so. I hope so. I'm excited that the first one is in March. That's nice and early in the year. Plenty of time to fit in a second one. And they announced it. So, Look we'll at see. LSS go. Thank you. Like, yeah. Awesome. It's like Amazing. five months away and we know where and when. It's awesome. I love it. Great job. Yeah. Yeah. And we know how much it's for too. It's a 200K. So hopefully that means that like when they announced 200K, that kind of made me a little hesitant. Cause I'm like, does that mean that there's only going to be one Pro Tour again? Cause that was kind of like their reasoning. Mm-hmm. Like, they did one pro tour this year and they bumped up the price pool from 100k to 200k because they were only doing one. So seeing the first one next year, it's a little over a month earlier in the year than this year's was and the price pool went up to 200k. So either they're planning to do multiple pro tours and just increasing the total amount of prize money they're giving out for Flesh and Blood next year, which would be that would be great. That'd be cool. The game's been growing, so um well that yeah. and let's Ho- hopefully that's the case. But. There's some kind of business and they make money every time they release a new product and people buy it. If they go up mm-hmm. to four sets a year from three sets a year, that's uh, more times they make money during a year, right? Sure, sure. So then they can afford. I, I don't know. That's just like a super simplistic business way to look at it. I don't know. Not that hosting $200,000 yeah, tournaments but- is like necessarily a good business decision anyways, but I don't know. I think it's a great business decision. I wouldn't have been playing Flesh and Blood if they didn't do their, if they didn't host tournaments. I would have never really? started. The person who's won over $100,000 playing this game thinks it was a really good business decision. I'm shocked. I'm a fan. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it.
So not only am I not playing Lexi in Dallas, we're going we're going all the way to the other end of the spectrum in terms of like not there's like there's there's difference between like not eating well and not exercising and not surrounding yourself with good people and then like drinking and smoking and eating nothing but candy and then <laughs> going and surrounding yourself with bad people. So those are like making actively making bad decisions and I'm playing Bolton. So that's probably closer to that. That's probably closer to like eating nothing but candy for like a week is probably what I would consider playing Bolton in the tournament next weekend. Hey, we, we made a couple tier lists and Bolton didn't do too bad, right? I put him on B. B and C tier, I think. Yeah. After, <laughs> after testing him, he was not supposed to be in B. But you know, uh, B for Bolton, how, how wrong could it be? Should he? And you put him Should in C tier. C tier. Yeah, you put him in C tier. So maybe that bodes well for me because he'll be the secret hero. I put Icelander in C tier last time. Yeah, yeah. And you put Azalea in B tier. I put his I put and then I put Azalea in C tier, and then Azalea won the last tournament. So my C tier hero won last week, and now your C tier hero will win next week. That's just how it has to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sounds right. No, no logical fallacies there. Nothing, nothing weird going on. That's just how it'll be. Yep, that's just how the world works. I, I don't, I can't explain it. I'm not a scientist, Michael, but I just know, I just know how things work. Sunrises, okay, sunsets. See to your heroes win tournaments. Mm-hmm. Just how it goes. So, I think last weekend though, if we look to Taipei, I think Azalea and Dromai were maybe. I know Dromai was definitely the second most represented deck. Lexi was by far and away the most represented deck, but do you think that's just like, what do you think about those heroes making a resurgence, especially Azalea? Yeah, I don't think there's, I don't think it's a surprise that Dromai did really well. Like Dromai was already pretty high on our list and have been, has been for a while. And then the Tome of the Imperial Flame, the new card that she got is really, really powerful. It's, kind of in line with some of the other tomes we have in this game mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of power level. Very, very good in the right spots. And I think because of that, I'm not really surprised to see Dromai doing well. Azalea was a little bit more of a surprise for me. I think that it's a hero that if the format has no warmongers diplomacy and there's not a lot of like tall defense reactions in the Guardian decks, I don't think her Lexi matchup's too bad. I, I would say Lexi's I guess it depends a lot on the build. I shouldn't say one side is favored to the other because it think matters like a lot 50/50. for both sides yeah. what they're playing. On average. Yeah. So having a reasonable Lexi matchup and being in a spot where the format's not playing like the best hate card against you, is, it's, it makes sense that Azalea would do well. And the power level's there. Yeah, and if we think about overall meta representation now, so you know Lexi's not going to run Warmongers and she's 20% of the field. You know, Dromai is not going to bring warmongers, and she's like fifteen percent of the field. If you're all, if Azalea is also five percent of the field, that's like forty percent of the field. That's that's just straight up not going to be on warmongers before factoring in all the other decks in the format. I think Dromai can be on warmongers if she wants to be. It's definitely a card that you can run in a Dromai deck. I think because of Tome, they're kind of incentivized to shift away from playing blues and just play more reds instead. Yeah, I think but Tome is what makes it is me a... make me me the 
base more than anything is because you got tome you have all the dragons you want to be playing like Droma has a lot of non-attack actions she's wanting to weave with these attack actions sure sure i don't know but yeah that's fair it's a card that like I've definitely seen I, it in some Droma decks. Yeah, like it's a card that I would want to bring in against Droma because I feel like it could buy you space, especially if they don't have a board. They kind of have to pick between attacking you with their red attacks or setting up their board. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I I'm not a Droma expert, and <laughs> me neither. I just know that she's unplayable. Don't know if I ever will be. We'll see. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think Droma is unplayable. Oh, I can't believe Bolton so, has a bad Dromai matchup. That's so surprising to me. I was so confident that Bolton would be good into Dromai, and he's just not. Why? Mm. Bolton's good against decks that want to block with attack actions a lot. Yeah, but you get all your your mopey bad on-hit effects guaranteed when you kill their dragons. Like, all your engulfing lights always go to soul, and all of your illuminates always go to soul, mm-hmm. and all of your Bolt of Purge mm-hmm. always draw a card. It's great. No, there's those. You're telling me the, that even when biggest, you get your on hit on uh, on hits, those cards aren't amazing rates. Well, that, that's not it. So much as like the cards aren't amazing rates when you're getting your on hit. But anytime you're attacking a dragon to kill it rather than popping it, the Dromai is getting very good value. So if Dromai plays, I don't know, a Kyloria and a Taxi for four, and then you spend a card to kill it, it or you spend two cards and get some on hit bonus because you're Bolton. It, the drum I spent two cards and then attacked for four and essentially blocked for four or two or whatever the power of the attack that you attacked it with. Mm-hmm. And that's, she's getting six points of value out of her thing. Even if your attack's hitting, it's still like the drum I did pretty well in that value exchange. And if the dragon's ever going to attack twice, then it's really, really good for her. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, well. Any other heroes you expect to pop up? Make a big new splashy resurgence here at the tail end of Lexi's dominance. Yeah, I I mean we talked about it on the tier list episode. That was last last week, I think. Yeah. That's last fair. Week. Still think still think Bravo is good. I think Bravo will be be around. New shoes are good. Oh yeah. I played a lot of Bravo. I thought I was gonna play Bravo. I thought I was gonna play Bravo and then I thought I was gonna play Usury. And then I thought I was gonna play Icelander and then I thought I was gonna play uh, anything that wasn't Bolton, and here I am playing Bolton. Uh, uh, but the shoes are—I like the way you put it. I, I think you said in our Discord that it's like an inverse stalagmite, where you like with stalagmite you wanted to time the frostbite such that it was the most disruptive to your opponent, and now with the shoes. Uh, you want to time it such that your opponent gets the least amount of value from the go again. So it's a really skill testing card. But that was your point. I, I didn't know if yeah, you wanted to expand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's just true. I think that's. I, I think the shoes are a really good design because a lot of the equipment just sits around waiting for breakpoints to be hit, and then you're like, "I'm going to use this to stop this breakpoint that hasn't on hit," and they just sit there until that point in the game, and. The shoes, you are incentivized to do something differently with them because it has this other effect similar to Slagmite, similar to Scowling Flushbag, where there's like it's doing something other than just preventing damage and stopping on hits, which is really cool. Yeah. And by the way, the shoes are called Civic Steps. I just wanted to say their actual name. I just looked it up real quick just to, uh, instead of saying the shoes, the shoes, uh, Civic Steps. 
yeah civic steps although i do say shoes a lot because it's like one of the 50 words austin knows at this time so we go so if you're like austin do you want to put on your shoes he goes shoe shoe and then he runs <laughs> oh. towards the shoes he knows about shoes now cute he's very cute well on that note, okay let's transition on to one of us our other other topics here what do you want to move on to so I got a few, or I guess we've had a few questions that I kind of want to talk about on this episode. Um, recently, one of my old coaching students, Zach, messaged me some questions that I want to talk to. And then we have some from the mailbag channel that we haven't gotten around to. But is that okay? Yeah, but it's not a mailbag episode. This is whatever the title of it's is not, up there, whatever it says up there, it's not going to say mailbag. Is it whatever, whatever okay, the well. YouTube thumbnail says? I guess I can't point to the YouTube thumbnail because people are watching it. But whatever it says, wherever you see the thumbnail, it's not going to say mailbag either. There's, there's, this isn't a mailbag. This is just us taking some questions and answering them. <laughs> okay. So Zach asked me, uh, he, he said he was curious about the start, uh, the, about mindset at the start of a match. So he asked me, do you have a particular idea of how you want to play the matchup? For example, aggro versus mid-range versus going long. Or is it better to have a mindset of how to play around their power cards? And in the meantime, you just play your hands out to the best of their ability. So what do you think? Well, do you want me to, he asked you, but if you want me to, yeah, I, I, you, I, I read the question. Let's okay. He asked you. So now you're asking me on his behalf. So you can answer. It yeah, after me. yeah. You, you answer. Yes. Okay. So I think it's important in flesh and blood to have a general idea and sense of the meta so you know generally what your deck and your opponent is going to present to you ahead of time best example of that obviously is going to be if you're against a wizard you're going to play your null rune equipment because you know that they have null rune card or arcane damage spells in their deck so you're going to want this special piece of equipment to counteract their super special type of damage that's like level zero of like doing uh, playing like making decisions or pregame mindsets based on what your opponent's doing, but that's kind of where heroes that have multiple game plan strategies. Like I've started playing Bolton this weekend, but I haven't revealed what type of Bolton deck I'm playing, and he's one of the few heroes in the game that can kind of vary pretty differently between a sabers, a fatigue strategy, a great axe build, or Raiden builds. All play pretty different. Uh, so those kind of unexpected things can happen, although they're usually pretty rare overall in the metagames. And then lastly, I think it's incumbent on you to get a sense in the game. Not only, I think they said about like your opponent's power cards, but also your power cards, what kind of life total ranges. And I think there's a lot of context to all of this. So it's important to not just have like a static mindset, I guess, overall is what I would say. It's important to kind of keep evaluating things on a turn by turn or even card by card basis and just kind of adjusting your game plan constantly. Yeah, I I agree with that. So I, I would say at the start of the match, I'm definitely thinking about like my power cards, their power cards, what things interact in what ways. Like, so I've been playing a lot of Lexi and one thing that, happens a lot is if your opponent's blocking you out every turn they're never attacking you back sometimes you'll draw three of a kind and a blue and two other arrows in your hand and you're just like i can i can cast a three of a kind but i was going to be able to fire the arrows anyway so like some of your cards line up poorly against specific things your opponent's doing whereas something like a pump spell like premeditate or lightning press is really good when 
your opponent's just blocking you out because it lets you kind of get around Voltaire's restriction of two arrows per turn. So kind of the cards that are important change based on how the games are going. Whereas three of the kinds is the best card in a racing situation where you want to be able to block with one or two cards, then spend your pitch of blue or use tunic to cast three of a kind and just get to play a full hand after blocking with two cards. Uh, a mini carry and husk. Yeah, infamously <laughs> um, called that now, yeah. <laughs> so I guess as certain cards are eliminated from your opponent's deck, um, you're like if you're playing as um, a matchup I played a lot of in the last few days is Bravo against Lexi. So one tip for the Bravos is if your Lexi opponent, if you're like through a third or a half of the game and your Lexi opponent hasn't seen any three of a kinds yet, maybe it's not a good time to take some damage to present some big attack that's not dominated because then she'll just block and play three of a kind probably because she hasn't seen any. On the other side of things, if your Lexi opponent plays three three of a kinds in the first few turns of the game and you still have enough life left that you can take some damage to send some big on hits it's much more appealing to do that even without dominate because you know that since she's out of all the three of a kinds or even if she's out of two three of a kinds it makes it a lot less likely to happen that it's going to be much less likely that she can just block with two cards play three of a kind and send a full hand back at you or even something like let's see let's say you see them play one lightning press early and then two or three four turns go by they haven't played a lightning press or a rain razors yet that also might be an indication that it might be okay to try to take some damage because they're more likely to draw into those kind of instant speed effects that aren't able to block then so mm-hmm. uh there's a, like i said there's just so much context and nuance based on every turn cycle what cards your opponents have seen what cards you haven't seen uh resources and deck total blue counts and one thing that's, I guess, if you're if you're playtesting on Talishar or something like that, it's a lot easier to keep track of these alternative resources because if you want to see what's in their graveyard, I guess you can't sort their graveyard on Talishar for some reason, but you can just look at it and just be like, oh, okay, easily. You don't have to give your opponent the information that you're looking at their graveyard or what's in their banner zone. I think the most important one is just deck size count. It's just always easy to see like, okay, they have 40 cards in deck. I have 45 cards in deck. I'm about to draw four. I got 41 to 40. I'm up one card in deck. It's just like you can constantly see that number changing all the time. And it's a lot easier to lose track of that in paper, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Um, One thing about Talishar not sorting graveyards, I don't think you're supposed to sort graveyards in paper either. Like you can't sort your opponent's graveyard. People do all the time. You're not supposed to put, keep your leave. You're, 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 not, you're not supposed to leave your rain razors, art of war, or, or non-attack actions on the battlefield either, Michael. You're not supposed to tap your card and leave it on I the side of the battlefield to remember your opponent about your, your starstruck effects. People do all kinds of things I, that you're not supposed to do in, in flesh I, and blood. I don't think any of that is against the rules. I, I think it is actually against the rules to sort your opponent's discard pile, but maybe I'm wrong. That's one of those rules that I would think is just as it could be there, but I've never once ever seen that be enforced at any time in my entire life. And I've seen plenty of people flick through and yeah. be like, okay, how many three of kinds have you played? Go through, put one three of a kind on top, second three of a kind. Okay. They're like I've seen that happen a lot, a lot, a lot. I probably okay. even done it at some point in time. So, so going back, Zach had some follow-up questions. So he said, um, as well as the definition of aggro and mid-range, um, as a magic player, these have a particular definition for him. However, sorry, for me, I'm going to read it from 
his perspective. As a Magic player, these have a particular definition for me. However, I am not sure the same definition holds for Flesh and Blood. Heroes seem much more adaptable throughout the game. Um, what do you think about that? Or do Depends you want me to answer first? Depends on the hero, right? Yeah. Because okay. Phi can't adapt. There's no world where Phi is like, okay, I'm just going to adapt to a mid-range strategy now. It's just like he's... It just doesn't have the block value. He doesn't have the modularity on his cards. Like they're all just pretty linear. Deal the damage, do the thing, and there's not a lot that he can really do to kind of pivot and deviate. I think the best example in my mind, and the reason why I like Icelander so much, is because she has those dual win conditions either through tempo or the frost hex combo end game strategy, and being able to. Mm-hmm recognize and adapt to your opponent's game plan if they're trying to fatigue you you notice in the mid game or you've gone through a lot of your uh, attacks and they've been blocking you out a lot then it's important on you to kind of pivot through the game and adjust yourself from being that tempo to the end game combo deck yeah that, that makes a lot of sense i think i don't know if there's really a clear difference between aggro and mid-range in flesh and blood i think mid-range is kind of like a weird term that has a lot of carryover from magic. There's like decks that are trying to just present as big of numbers as possible and don't really have a lot of disruption or on hits. We think of things like uh, Briar, uh, Viscerai, Fi, these aggressive decks that are just like, I do a lot of damage. But then you also can kind of look at decks that are doing a lot of damage, like Lexi and Azalea, which they're doing a lot of damage, but they're kind of presenting more of it through on hits and um, potentially disruption as well especially Red in the Ledger is a big disruptive card. Um, some of Lexi's ice effects or cards like Hamstring Shot and Fatigue Shot are definitely disruption. And Command and Conquer is kind of the most classic disruption card that we that I always think of just killing their arsenal is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say there's like kind of, there's like aggressive decks, then there's like disruptive decks that are like, mid-range isn't really it feels a little weird to call them mid-range because they're it's not really being mid-range it's like more about being disruptive than being in the middle i guess yeah i don't know i get what you're saying with the mid-range being a hard to pin down term in flesh and blood and in my mind decks like dorinthia is kind of like a mid-range deck in my mind these decks that can present medium range numbers on offense like they can go slightly above right if you let them do their thing unencumbered but usually it's hard for them to like break higher than maybe like 15 value on average per turn like it's really hard to like do that over the course of the game but they have a really low floor and all their cards block for three and they have a lot of defense reactions and they can kind of play defensively pretty well as well like they're not trying to just only block and they're not trying to only attack you're trying to block when you need to block and attack when you need to attack and hope your cards line up the in the way that you need them to when you're doing those game plans and i guess like compare that to a deck like lexi where you block a decent amount with lexi because a lot of the time you don't have a use for your second blue or you're going to cast three of a kind anyway so you don't need these extra cards i think that's and that's what makes that, that, that feels very similar. Well, and that's what makes Lexi so broken is because she doesn't have to choose between playing these kinds of modular things. She just gets to do it all, all the time. If she needs to block, she can block. If she needs to press a million damage, she can press a million damage. And there's not a lot of tension in her ability or questions for her to do either of those game plans with any given 
four to six cards she has available to four to six to like sometimes nine cards available no eight cards available if you play three of a kind from your hand because you go down one and then up three so uh yeah it's just there's just two there's so much modularity she's never going to be choked on action points because of voltaire she's never going to be having a whole hand or it's very 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 rare to catch her with like a whole hand or a whole circumstance where she just can't can't block since the all, all the arrows block for three that's just going to be a primary game plan that's just available to her most of the time so with Dorinthia, you can kind of look at your hand, which was like, okay, so I have two blues, a sink below, and a singing steel blade. Well, my opponent has to block for my singing steel blade to get value. My sink below is offering me to get like blocking anyways. Like I'm just blocking with this hand. It's just a clear hand that I want to block with. But Lexi can look at that same hand of like two blue arrows, uh, red infecting shot, and a rain razors. And it's like, oh, cool. I can get like, Six, four, like four value off my rain razors push the on hit off my uh, infecting shot and even this potential on hit on my blue arrow and it still just presents offense perfectly fine and if she needs to block nine on that hand it just blocks nine as well and you just arsenal the rain razors it's just like there's no tension in that hand <laughs> sure sure that 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 is fair i think lexi does have a kind of it's not unique to her it's something that a lot of heroes have to worry about but she can be she can run out of cards in her deck but She's pretty good at killing the opponent before yeah, that. I was about to say. Because her numbers go up uh, way higher than decks can block out for on a turn-to-turn basis. And then you factor in her ability yep. to take away opponent's armor with on-hit effects like Drill Shot, and it's just like, okay, she's the best deck. We all know. Still playing Bolton. <laughs> so, last question from Zach. What is the general rule of thumb players can use to assess their status in the game? For example, ahead, behind, or on pace. This is definitely hero-specific, but it feels like there should be some kind of general guidelines for players. I feel like we gave a lot of these guidelines on question one. This, this, I feel like you could have lumped these two questions together because they're somewhat similar. Okay. Where, once again, we're just going to say you have to evaluate what cards you have left in your deck, what cards your opponent have left in their deck, what does the equipment situation look like, what does their threat density look like, what does your threat density look like, what does their ability to block look like, what does your ability to block look like for the rest of the game. And you kind of have to assess all of those factors, and I think that's why it's so hard to just give vague general guidelines because there's just so much to flesh and blood. And I don't know if you knew this, Michael, but flesh and blood's a hard game. So that's just what makes those baseline heuristics to just really hard to say. Cause it, for example, in magic, you could say like, okay, when you get four lands and 10 life or something like that in this particular matchup, then you need to be really worried about X, Y, Z happening or this play pattern or something like that. But those same threshold in life situations can happen in flesh and blood, but they're still much more modular given the, like the constant hand rotating system in the game. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I really agree with your answer. I think like one thing that we do a lot in our manor university videos um, through our Patreon is that, a lot of the time we'll pause in the middle of the game and you'll ask me, who do you, who who's ahead? How's the game looking for each side? And all those things that you mentioned now are all things we look at, what what cards they've used from their deck, what their equipment situation is. Of course, the life situation, but um, it 
there really are a lot of things that go into figuring out whether you're ahead or behind. And sometimes it's kind of obvious. Sometimes you're at 10 and your opponent's at 20 and it's their turn and they have a four card hand plus an arsenal. You're, you're probably losing in almost every spot unless they're like basically out of cards in deck. But for the most part, um, there, there are, there are a lot of things that go into who's ahead and who's behind. Yeah, absolutely. Flush mode's hard. Flush mode's complicated, but that's why we like it, baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good game. Okay. Next question. All right. This is from John in uh, our Manor Discord. He says, Michael has mentioned that he prefers in-person drafts, in-person to online drafts. What are some of the differences and what makes in-person better for learning? This one's kind of aimed at yeah, me, huh? All of you. <laughs> so, so now that drafting online is an easily available option anymore, but in-person drafts, I think the biggest thing is um, seeing everybody at the table after you draft or at the tables playing their decks, you kind of get a better sense of what happened in the draft pod. You can kind of figure out who's in what seat, like the person next to you, maybe online, you knew that they were drafting uh, Dash, but then in, in person, you're going to see them play, like they play this red boom grenade. And you're like, oh, I passed that that way. That that makes sense. And this it kind of like helps tell the, the whole story better when you see everything in person. And then, I think it's also just better preparation for the events that I've called drafts where you have like, you pick up the pack and they're like, you have 40 seconds and you look and you pick your card, you put it face down in front of you and you can't look at it until you get to the end of the pack. And you can kind of practice doing that too in person. Yeah, that's true. I think that draft is just, there's a lot of nuance to it. That's really hard to get on that online client. A lot of the examples you gave are, are something that I really agree with, but then there are also things that matter a lot in paper, such as shuffling the cards or making sure that you're not passing them in a specific order or manipulating the cards, or it's a lot more taxing, I feel, to really internalize the cards as like you're looking at them almost one at a time or just slightly fanned out you're not ever having them all presented to you all at once on a screen. Like you can't lay out all the cards in front of you, look at them and be like, I want that one. You kind of have to be very active <laughs> while you're holding the card. So there's that tactile sense that goes into it. It just becomes a lot more of an engaging process as with anything is when you're doing it in the flesh and blood as opposed to doing it online. And that just can't be replicated as well as just the physical presence of those eight people when that that means that you're going to probably play even when you're practicing you're going to play out your games you're there you're there to play flesh and blood you're there to do it whereas when we were online or doing online drafts somebody it was so common to be like okay we did the draft i gotta go by and then you don't even know their quality of deck you don't know what even card like you, you wouldn't even know if they took that red boom grenade because they're just like bye i'm gone it's just like okay uh it's just just incentivize a lot more just like draft and just forget about it kind of experiences i felt like and that's why i really did not like the online drafting process yeah i think a lot of the time we could get almost everybody or everybody to play the first round but even then like just playing one round and then leaving is also not very very useful you really need like honestly i think playing much more than three games with each draft deck would still be very helpful and i think just in general that's my biggest complaint is we spend more time drafting than playing a lot when we're testing online, which is just like not an efficient use of our time. I think playing the game teaches you a lot more than the drafting yeah, process. 
Um, he had a follow-up question too. He said, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think about deck building and draft. In one of your episodes about building decks in Class Constructed, I remember you saying a common strategy is to find the most powerful thing a hero does and build around that. I wonder if that thinking is modified at all when you are drafting a deck and building it as you go rather than constructing a deck from all the cards that exist. Um, for me, the short answer is it's it's pretty similar. You just like like you you want when you when I am drafting a deck, I'm trying to just do the most efficient things that I can do with the cards that I have available. So um, most of the time that is converting your four cards into as much value as possible. I think there are a few differences. For example, in bright lights, sometimes you also need to be considering fatigue rather than just being as efficient as possible with your four cards. But um, for the most part, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what my hero can do that's powerful and, and do that. Like Teklo, Teklo Vasin, um, you're usually trying to block with your Evo, scrap him, and then play him from your banish zone because that's like plus card mm-hmm. economy like plus like you're when you're playing an evo from banish it's basically a free card so even if it only blocks for two first you're still getting two plus a card versus if you played it from hand where you're just getting the, the value of the evo equal. yeah and what's not the best about flesh and blood drafting is since you're always prioritizing maximizing your deck's value and resource curve and worrying about fatigue. When you look at a pack, there might not even be an option for you in that pack that helps you on any front of those game plans. Sometimes you look at a pack and you can just be like as early as in the middle of pack two, or sometimes even at the, like, even sometimes in the middle of pack one, if your heroes start drying up, you're just like, oh, like I can't, none of the, these cards actually help me effectuate any of my game plans because they're not for my hero. That matter that happens less now in Bright Lights because obviously all the cards are draftable and playable in all the decks, but it still comes up where there are still cards that heroes definitely prefer to play over, uh, over others. Like Max isn't super interested in the Evos and things like that. So it just can be awkward given the innate flesh and blood game system yeah the, the good news is a lot a lot of cards they say three in the bottom right corner they're fine and limited True. so <laughs> just pick, pick the the best card that has a three in the corner when you're in that spot and then usually that's okay but yeah. okay you want me to handle the last question i think it's the last question the casual yeah. scene since i'm the casual caster playing bolton uh it just says does <laughs> fab need a casual scene and a casual scene to come out fast to survive casual scenes already here casual scene, i got I, I even bought the Tolarian community college round the table thing that's as casual scene as it gets gather your friends teach some people play some games of ultimate pit fight have a have a grand old time it's a really great product a lot of fun uh engaging decks it's great that they collaborated with the professor and ultimate pit fight i think is established itself as a great casual way to play flesh and blood and then if we take like a half step up from there i think blitz is like the next more casual way to play flesh and blood overall the games are a little bit faster it's more accessible you need less copies of the cards to play the games and there are more heroes that are viable in blitz that are in class constructed typically given that the life totals are lower it's just they're just as long as you can kind of get to that 20-ish range pretty fast you're probably a viable blitz deck so uh 
yeah, I, I think the casual scene. And then ultimately at the end of the day, we'll never know how many kitchen table players there are. Like there's just going to be a good percentage of the player base that just goes to a local game store or just orders some product online, hangs out with their buddy Mike and just plays some games at their kitchen table for like a month and just is like, okay, we're done. And that's kind of how we played sorcery. Like we, we got those boxes, we played on my table over there for a little while and then we're, we're done. We played some sorcery. Well, maybe we'll play some sorcery now and then here and then again, but like, that's just how, that's just how the game is for us. Yeah. And I heard at some point I heard that EDH was the most popular way to play magic, but more recently I actually heard, um, I know we're jumping, but, uh, magic, uh, the most popular way to play magic is apparently just called, it's just kitchen table where people just play with the cards they own. It's not like any constructed format, not no set of like format or anything and just people playing games with the cards they own and i think that like you said we won't know how much that's happening in flesh and blood i know some of my friends um that some of my outside of flesh and blood friends that now play a little bit of flesh and blood that's how they play they just play with the cards they have they don't know what's banned or what's classic constructed or blitz they're just like playing with the young heroes or playing with the adult heroes and they play whatever they want to play and that's fine you yeah know? i do think or i do have a follow-up question Go for you it. though so you said you said ultimate pit fight is like kind of the it's it's here it's good people are playing it having a good time. Have you played a game of ultimate? No, pit fight but I also don't play commander. Okay, same, same. So I was just curious. Um, I do plan on trying the PVE once it comes out. I, in general, I'm a pretty big fan of good cooperative experiences that you can do with people that like friends because I like playing. I hate co-op games. I'm, cooperating is the worst. Grump. <laughs> We okay okay whatever. <laughs> I I like co-op games. I when I get when I'm playing something competitively, I get like really into it, and I it's hard to not be competitive. But when you're cooperating, then it's just it's just chill, you know. Yeah, that's fair. I just can't engage with it as much. I just kind of check out most of the time if I'm not engaged with it on a competitive level because I just don't. Since I'm not invested in the outcome, it's just whatever. That's why I don't play Dungeons and Dragons either. I'm the worst person you could ever do a Dungeons and Dragons campaign with because I'll just troll the dungeon master. I'll just have my character hide in a corner or actively work against the team to create that friction to try to make it competitive. So I feel like I'm working, even though it's supposed to be cooperative, I'm still like, ah, I got that feisty, I'm a rebel without a cause kind of attitude. Uh-huh. So my people just call me toxic, well, but you know, I don't know anybody who would ever call me that anyways on any thing I've ever done. Okay. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So yeah, casual formats. They're there. They're happening. PVE will come out eventually. I'm sure it'll be a boon. Everybody wants PVE. I am no doubt it will be a phenomenal product whenever it comes out because the game of flesh and blood is just the, and the mechanics of it are just so deep that they can do whatever they want with it, however they want with it. And I'm excited to see all the sweet things that they can do with this game system because it's, it truly is limitless. Now, now I feel like they have a lot of pressure on them, but I mean, (laughs) I guess, but that just comes with like making anything when you're actually making and producing things, you always have that pressure on you. Right. That's fair. That's fair. That's why you don't like making things because you don't like pressure on yourself. Except for the podcast. You love making the podcast. 
And I do like making the podcast. It's a good time. I just get to hang out with my buddy. I don't have to actually like do that much. I just show up. And yeah, you don't do the editing. You don't make the thumbnails. You don't. You don't. You don't do the processing. You just. I'm here. You do the talking. You win the tournaments. Mm-hmm. Thanks, buddy. I, I I prepared the questions for this week. That so you did. I did. I did a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, any final thoughts then, buddy? As we wrap things up. Hmm. I didn't realize I was asking another profound oh. question. Uh, I, I do want to say next week's episode is going to come out a day late because I'll be late getting back from Dallas. So it'll be out on Friday instead of Thursday. Yeah, Michael's going to be doing Dallas for a while. So What? I'm going to be in Dallas for a uh-huh. while. Yep, that's what I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> what you said. Okay. <laughs> well, the next time you're doing Dallas, always remember. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>